Well, good morning. It is a joy to be back with you. Happy New Year. Last week I was gone, and so this is my first time with you here in 2023. I can't believe that just sounds like such a weird number. It always does, I guess, at the beginning of the of the year. But uh, I just want to uh, wish you all a Happy New Year and thank Ed Bortz for filling in last week in the pulpit. It's always a blessing to us to have Ed share with us. Um, I've been asked to let you know that uh, year-end giving statements will be made available in the narthex after the service. So if you'd like to just pick that up after the service, uh, it will be available to you. Um, a couple notes in your uh, bulletin that uh, we need updating. One is that Hazel Marlin's listed as being at Regency in Grand Blanc, and I understand she has actually gone home, and so uh, we rejoice with her in that, that she's back at home. Also, uh, Leroy Campbell was at uh, Ascension Genesis. He's now in rehab at Maplewoods and Clio. Um, and so as he continues to recover, he certainly uh, could, could continue to be praying for him. Um, we've got uh, men's fellowship breakfast coming up on January 19th. Just something new that we're starting. And, and I sure hope that men of the church will be a part of that Thursday the 18th, or 19th at 8 a.m., We'd love to see you here, so put that on your calendar. And then also, finally, today after worship, we will be uh, taking down the Christmas decorations. If you would be so kind as to stay and help out with that, it would make the work a lot easier. So uh, just uh, make that opportunity of service known to you now. Philippians 4, verse 4, we read, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. If you're able, would you rise with me now as we sing hymn number 281, Rejoice, the Lord is King. Mm -hmm. 
together now with one another. We have sinned against you, O Lord, our Maker, our Defender, and our Redeemer. Our natures are corrupt and sinful, prone to fall away from you, sluggish to do good, and swift to do evil. Vain thoughts have come upon us and found lodging within us, defiling and disquieting out good thoughts. We have burdened ourselves with that care which you have commanded us to cast upon you. We have failed in our duties one to another and have provoked one another as much to folly and anger as to love and good works. We have been cold in our love to you, weak in our desires to steady in our walking with you, and are even at this time poorly prepared to serve you. We beseech you to forgive all our sins for Christ's sake, and to be at peace with us, and to him who died to make peace, and lives to make intercession for us. Amen. Let's take a moment to silently confess our sins as well. What good news we have if we are in Christ Jesus to know the words of the 103rd Psalm. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Let us therefore praise our gracious God.
we are, we are starting a new sermon series on uh, the gospel according to Mark. And as we begin, it's probably best to give you a little bit of an introduction to the book itself before we actually jump in. Uh, the word gospel, of course, means good news. And, and the good news that Mark brings us is actually more than just good news. It is great news. It is life-changing news. It is world-changing news. It's not just good news. It is the best news. There, of course, are, are four books in the Bible that we call Gospels. The first four books is the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it's somewhat of a misnomer to say Matthew's gospel or Mark's gospel. Um, what, what they actually are is, is they're the, the gospel, the truth, the good news, according to or as written by Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. And because four different people are the ones that tell us this story, they, they come from different perspectives. They, they have different audiences that they're writing to. They have different uh, emphases that they are trying to bring out as they share the truth of the gospel. They have different tones that they use in writing the gospels. Take, for example, the gospel of Mark. Just one uh, example is, is if we consider the word joy. If I just look in, in a concordance in my ESV Bible, I look up the word joy, I'll find that it shows up in Matthew six times, it shows up in John seven times, it shows up in uh, Luke ten times, but it shows up in Mark only once. And in that place, it's Mark 4.16, it's, it's where he says that, that, that people, certain group of people are like, like the seeds that are scattered on rocky soil. And though that they receive the word with joy, they soon, because they have no roots, wither up and fall away. So we can see that, that Mark is obviously not the most joyful of gospel presentations. In fact, it's been noted that Mark's unique sayings, those, those sayings that Mark has that are absent from the other gospels, are almost always dark sayings. Professor and scholar Hans Beyer put it this way. He said, it is almost as if Mark's editorial task is to use almost all the dark passages. Now that's kind of odd, you would think. If you're bringing good news to people, why would you have a tendency to be so dark and gloomy in what you're saying? Well, we need to remember that Mark was written primarily for the Christians in Rome. And this is while they were under Nero as emperor. Nero, of course, we know was, was seemingly a decent emperor in the mid to late 50s AD. But then in, in the 60s, some bad things started happening. And in the year 64 AD, a fire spread throughout Rome. Rumors persisted that Nero had actually started the fires. And he needed to get the heat off of himself, as it were. 
And so, according to the historian Tacitus, to suppress this rumor, Nero fabricated scapegoats and punished with every refinement the notoriously depraved Christians, as they were popularly called. And Christians were henceforth persecuted heavily in Rome in those days. So Mark was writing to a people who, who lived in what seemed to be a very dark time and a very dark place, living very dark lives. And this helps explain why the book might seem to be so dark. This book that's divided into two halves largely, marked off by two confessions. The first half of the book proclaims or demonstrates that Jesus is the Messiah. And it culminates in Peter's confession in chapter 8 that indeed Jesus is the Christ. The second half of the book, though, from that point on, essentially shows that while Peter and the disciples with him knew that Jesus was the Messiah, that Peter, the disciples, really all the people of God, had no idea what it actually meant to be the Messiah and what the implications of that were. And so we see it culminate in Mark 15, 39, when another confession is made. Now, not one of the Jews, but a Gentile, a centurion, standing at the foot of the cross where Jesus has died, proclaims, truly this man was the Son of God. While Peter and the Jews saw that Jesus was the Messiah through his wonders and his miracles and his magnificent workings and the power he seemed to have, this Gentile saw that Jesus was the Messiah through his death. far less ethical teaching in Mark than in the other Gospels. What we see instead is, is what it looks like for disciples to follow Jesus on the road to the cross. And it's the shortest of the four Gospels, and the pace is very quick. The word immediately shows up time and time again. In fact, the word immediately, even though Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels, shows up as many times in Mark as in all the other Gospels combined. Most scholars agree that Mark was the, the first of the four Gospels written, and we should make note of one last important fact. The uh, second century church father, Papias, refers to the traditional teaching that Mark was the hermeneutus or, or scribe or translator for the apostle Peter. And so what we have here is not just the gospel according to Mark, but, but really the gospel that Peter had shared with Mark. In many senses, this is Peter's telling of the gospel. And that's why Peter is mentioned more in Mark than in any other gospel. And why Peter is shown more unfavorably in Mark than in any other gospel. Because Peter knew his own sin. He knew the darkness of his own heart. So now as we look to our sermon text, Mark 1, verses 1 through 8, would you please rise out of respect for God's word as I read this passage to you. This is the inspired word of God. 
the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. All the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes, one, comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. As you are, would you pray with me once more? Our Lord God, we thank you for the good news that you have given us. We pray now that you would open our ears to the proclamation of that good news, that we might know it for ourselves, and that we might live in light of it now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes when you're reading a book or watching a movie or even a television series, uh, there, there will be a case where you get to the end of the story and there's a big surprise. The main character, perhaps, ends up not being who you thought he was, right? You, you think he's one person and then you get to the end and his identity is revealed and it's, it's like, wow, I didn't ever expect that. That is completely not what Mark does here, right? He, he starts off, with his very first words in the gospel, say the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so we learn right off the bat, in the very first verse, who the gospel is about. And first, it's about Jesus, our Savior. Jesus, our Savior. Right? During Advent and Christ Christmas, we... We look to this fact that Jesus was born. But do you recall why he was called Jesus? I hope you do. After all, there's a reason that people named their children certain things. It, it might be to honor somebody. It might be because of a, a family tradition. It could be they just like the way the name sounds. But you'll recall that in this case, the angel had come to Joseph in Matthew 1 and said of Mary, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. You say, well, why, why does that have anything to do with Jesus and saving people from his sins? Well, well the name Jesus is the Hebrew equivalent of of Joshua, or what we would say Joshua, the, the actual Hebrew word is Yeshua, and, and it's kind of a combination of two words, one Yah, which is short for Yahweh, or, or the self-identification of God, 
and the Shua, which, which means that he saves. So Yahshua or Joshua or Jesus all mean the same thing. Yahweh saves. And it's through Jesus that God saves his people. When he's called Jesus, it is because he is our Savior. We cannot take Jesus simply as a good teacher. We cannot think that Jesus was simply a, a really good example of how we should live life. We cannot see him just as a religious leader who was pretty good at what he did. We must see him as no less than our Savior because we all stand in need of saving. There is not one of us who that is not true of. And because we all stand in need of saving, because we all need a Savior, we all need to look to Jesus, for he is the only one who is capable of saving us. He is our Savior, Jesus our Savior. The gospel is about him. What does it say beyond Jesus, though? It says Jesus Christ. That's the second thing. He is Christ the king. Again, the word Christ comes from that, that word Christos in Greek. The Hebrew version of that is Messiah. We get our word Messiah, of course, from that. Again, the Christ, Christos, Messiah, Messiah, they all mean the same thing. They mean an anointed one. And who is it that would be anointed in ancient times? Well, well, you would see a prophet or a priest or a king would all be anointed. And Jesus, of course, holds all of these roles. He is the great prophet. He is the great priest. He is the great king. Today, though, we want to focus especially on that last one. He is the king. Why do I say we want to focus on that? Is because of that use of that word gospel. This is the gospel. In, in the ancient Greek culture, they would use this term, which we've already said means good news, specifically uh, in, in cases where it was speaking of the, the pending visitation of a king. They would announce that the king was coming. They would say that is the gospel, that he is coming. Or perhaps they would, they would use it to announce a royal birth, right? There, there is a king, a future king who has been born. This is the gospel. It is good news. Or, or perhaps they would use it in terms of a great military victory. We have conquered the enemies under the banner of our king. You see, they all point to this idea of royalty, to this idea of a king. And so, specifically here, when we see that Jesus is the Christ, we want to read into that, that he is our king. He is the one who wins victories on our behalf. I know we in America don't tend to like kings, right? We fought a war all about that. And yet, we need to realize that all earthly kings are but pale imitations of what a king truly ought to be, right? One who, who loves his subjects and who serves his subjects and cares for his subjects and fights battles on behalf of his subjects, protects them and provides for them. This is what Jesus has done as our king. He is our savior. He is our king. And what else does it say about him? 
says Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is another phrase that was actually used by emperors, by, by kings, right? They would use it to refer to themselves, trying to claim a, 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 a status that was higher than that which they should have claimed. Caesar Augustus famously referred to himself as the Son of God. But in the case of Jesus, it's pointing to something more than just royalty here. It's pointing to the fact that, that Jesus was the fulfillment of all that Israel was meant to be. Israel had been called the Son of God in the Old Testament. And, and where Israel had failed to accomplish the things that it was called to accomplish, Jesus would succeed. Jesus would, would accomplish all that he was supposed to. And beyond this, Jesus, unlike the kings of antiquity, could claim to be a god, not just because he wanted to use that for political power, he actually was. He was the Son of God. He was God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. He actually was God in the flesh. And so we need to realize that Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is our King. Jesus is God in the flesh. To accept him as anything less is to not accept him as he truly is. We cannot rightly claim to worship Jesus. We cannot rightly claim to be Christians if we do not understand Jesus to be our Savior and our King and our God. And so Mark begins this story of Jesus. And it's interesting to note that he doesn't begin with the birth of Jesus, does he? Right? We, we might expect it to start with a with a manger, or with angels, right, or with, with shepherds, or, or even wise men. But in fact, he doesn't even start with Jesus at all. In fact, he starts in the Old Testament prophets. And in pointing to Jesus, these prophets first point to a forerunner, a forerunner, a messenger who is going to come before him. And so we see in verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, this messenger, this forerunner, this one who comes before Jesus, right, is the one we write about. And we, we need to understand what a forerunner does. And the first thing a forerunner does is he prepares the way. That's what it says. He, he will prepare your way. It's the practice in the ancient Near East that, that if a king was going to come, a messenger or a forerunner would come before them, and they would have two main functions in preparing the way. One would be to proclaim that the king was coming. To say, everybody, get ready. The king is coming. You need to prepare yourselves. You know, put on your best clothes maybe. Maybe, maybe uh, tune up your, your instruments so you can come out and play them joyfully for the king. Maybe, maybe rearrange your schedule because he's coming. You want to make sure you're there. You know, all these things, you need to prepare yourself. So he proclaims this message that people might be able to get ready. The other thing he does is he kind of scouts out the pathway there. He scouts out the road there because if he's coming along and he realizes, oh, look, there's a pothole in the road on the way. We can't have the king coming along a pothole. Not, I mean, I know being Michiganders, you guys can't even imagine this, but, but just imagine it. Try to, you know, try really hard. There's a pothole in the way. We don't want the king coming across the pothole and, you know, tripping, falling, whatever, falling off of his, his steed or something, you know. So, so what they would do is they would go ahead and they would scout out the territory and then bring forces with them that would actually 
actually make the roads smooth, make the roads, you know, the path to be easy to traverse. They would make it an easy way for him to go. So they would prepare the way in this way. And so we see this reference here. This is written in Isaiah the prophet. And the first part actually isn't Isaiah the prophet. It's talking about the second part of this quote. But the first part is actually kind of referring, or at least a, a, a usage of what is said in Malachi 3, where it says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord. Notice that the, the messenger or forerunner comes first, but then who comes after him? God himself will come after him. That's what's being said here is Jesus will come. He's God himself. He'll come after him. But first is the messenger. And so in verse 3 of our text today, it says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Right? This is the quote from Isaiah. We read it together in our unison scripture reading. Right? That voice in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight the desert a highway for our God. Right? This is actually quoted in all four of the Gospels. It's obviously a very important passage. And if we go just a little bit further in Malachi than where we were a minute ago, to the penultimate verse in the Old Testament, Malachi 4-5. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So, so we see this picture being filled in a little bit. Not just is there a messenger who is coming before the Lord, but it is Elijah. You'll recall Elijah, the Old Testament prophet. Now, the people who heard this might have said, wait, is it really Elijah that's coming? Actually the same Elijah? And they think, well, maybe. After all, Elijah never died. Remember, he was carried off into heaven. So, so maybe it's actually saying him. Or maybe it's just referring to one who will come like Elijah. That would be a normal way of speaking for them to say that, to, to say that Elijah would come. And so they didn't know for sure, but they were trying to figure it out. But, but we see here that it was indeed that second one, somebody who was coming in the role of Elijah, somebody who was coming like him. And what does a prophet do? But a prophet proclaims repentance. That's the second thing that the forerunner is going to do. He proclaims repentance. John appeared, we see in verse 4, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, if there's ever a popular message, if you ever want to win friends and influence people, if you ever want to be the hit of the party, just start telling people that they're sinful, you know, and that they need to repent. People love to hear that. It just makes you just a joy, believe me. Now, nobody likes to hear that, do they? I don't like to hear it. You don't like to hear it. Nobody likes to hear it. But, but remember what we said before about needing saving because of our sinfulness. We need to hear it. We need to hear that repentance is needed. And that's what John was doing. And the hand of God was upon him. Clearly, because we see in, in verse 5 that the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. He, he came out and just proclaimed this message of repentance. You need to repent. You are sinful. And people were like, lining up to come hear it. God was at work, clearly. 
He was accomplishing his purposes as John proclaimed this message of repentance. But here's what's really interesting, I think, about it. As he proclaimed this message of repentance, who is he proclaiming it to? We see that all of Judea and all Jerusalem came out. These are the people of God, right? He's, he's not going off to far off lands to the pagans and the people who know nothing of God and telling them they need to repent. But rather, he's going to the people who, who are the people of God. These are the people that come to church every Sunday. These are the people that show up for Bible study. These are the people that serve on church committees and, and are doing uh, extra ministries beyond that. These are all the, the so-called good people. And he's saying, you need to repent. He's saying, I need to repent. We need to repent. We need to think about that. We should think about that this morning. We should think about that in the days to follow, in the weeks to follow. We should constantly be thinking about that. Where do I need to repent? Where is it in my life that I need to repent? We should be praying about that. Lord, unmask my sin to me. Help me to see the sins that are in my life. Those things that, that I don't even notice. Those things that I don't even realize I'm doing. Those things maybe that I realize I'm doing but don't realize that they are sinful. We need to confess those things. We need to repent of those things. We need to be made aware of those things. And some of us in this room perhaps even need to wrestle with the fact that perhaps we've never repented of any of our sin in the first place. Perhaps we think that we're good enough. Perhaps we think that, you know, I'm all right. I've lived a decent life. I'm better than the guy next door. I'm better than that guy I saw on the news. Some of us need to wrestle with that fact perhaps that we've never really repented in the first place, and we need to repent and trust in Jesus. Well, just like in the day of Elijah, in the day of John the Baptist, the people of God today need to hear the message of repentance. John had picked up the mantle of Elijah. He had picked up this mantle and proclaimed this message of repentance. And that's why in verse 6 we read, he was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. It's, a, it's an odd outfit. It's a, a peculiar diet. But what we see is, if we look a little bit deeper, that he is dressing like John. He is eating like, or like Elijah. He is eating like Elijah. He's dressing like Elijah. And, and we realize that like Elijah, John is in the wilderness and like Elijah, he's, he's bringing this message of repentance, and, and Mark is, in fact, pointing to the fact that John the Baptist is the long-awaited Elijah, who God had said to his people would come. And God, God had promised that John's work would be like that of Elijah, and later Jesus would even say, Elijah has come, in reference to John. But here's the one other thing I want you to know about the forerunner about the messenger. While he does proclaim a message of repentance, his message is not simply stop sinning. Right? What else does he preach? He preaches Christ. He preaches Christ. Right? Preaching has somewhat of a bad name, I think. Right? And I, I say that as a preacher, so maybe I'm a little biased. But, but, Preaching has a bad name, right? Somebody, somebody might say in our world that, that, that they think of 
preaching as just like uh, throwing moral commands at them, moral imperatives, telling them to follow the rules and do this and do that and don't do this and don't do that. And, and, and we might even hear somebody say something like, I don't want to listen to somebody preach at me, right? As, as if it's some kind of attack. And that's what it is. They just think of preaching in those terms. Don't get me wrong, there certainly is a place for calling people to repentance, pointing out sin. We just said that a moment ago. But, but we need to, to realize that, that if one is to truly preach in a Christian fashion, Christian preaching, it must have something more than that. Those rules, they can't be center stage, right? Because, because a, a Hindu priest can tell you and will tell you that God exists. And, and a Jewish rabbi will, can and will tell people that God is but one. And you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you should love your neighbor as yourself. And a Buddhist monk will tell you that that, that not only are your actions impure, but, but that we are born into an impure and broken world. And, and a Muslim cleric will tell you that you should follow all kinds of very conservative and strict behavioral uh, moral standards. Right? But, but Christian preaching must have something beyond all of this. Right? Christian preaching must go beyond those. True Christian preaching must be centered on Christ. And that's what we see from John the Baptist. He preached Christ. The crowds were coming to him from all throughout Judea. They were hanging on his every word. He had them in his hands. He could do whatever he wanted with them. He could have twisted them and had them make him into the king. But what does he say? He preached in verse 7. After me comes he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Right? This most menial of tasks that was reserved for Gentile servants. Right? Because you're getting down in the dirt, in the dust, getting, getting down on the ground. Right? Down on the ground and, and untying somebody's shoes and and their dirty feet, they've been walking along the dirty roads, and, and their feet are sweaty and dirty and stinky, and you don't want to mess with that, right? So, so it's these most menial of tasks. And John says, I'm not even worthy to do that. For all of my popularity, for all of my notoriety, for all that I've done, I'm not even worthy to do that lowest of tasks compared to Jesus. Compared to Jesus, I am nothing. He is what it's all about. John was clear. He was the messenger, but Jesus was the message. Right? John, John might be speaking, but Jesus was the word. Right? And so... so I think back to when I was ordained and, and, and Jay Sklar, who preached at, that, preached at that service, referred to John 1. And, and he read this. In this testimony, 
of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And Jay said on that day to me that that was an important thing to always remember. I am not the Christ, right? No matter what I do as a pastor, I can't save anyone. I can't, I can't accomplish the things that only Jesus can accomplish, right? And I can't take his place. John the Baptist knew this well. He said, I am not the Christ. But the next day, we read in John 1, 29, John would point to Jesus and proclaim to the masses that were following him, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How does Jesus do that? He does that by dying on the cross for your sins and for mine. That we, by trusting in him, might have our sins forgiven. See, John knew whatever he did, whatever he accomplished, whatever he, he was able to do, it was only valuable to the degree it pointed others to Jesus. Even that baptizing for which he was so well known was only important if it pointed people to Jesus. I have baptized you with water, he says in verse 8, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Right? That's what water baptism does. Is it, 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 it is a picture of what Jesus does. It is, it is a picture of what Jesus accomplishes. We, we pour out water on the head of a person, but it reminds us that it is Jesus who pours out his spirit. It is Jesus who by his grace, through nothing we have done, pours out his spirit upon us. And it's just like the Lord's table. It's just like the Lord's table where we partake of this bread, and we partake of this cup, and we are reminded of Jesus once more. We're reminded of him who died for us. When we partake of it, we are in a mysterious way united with him that through faith, by the power of his spirit, we might actually partake of Jesus. His flesh, his blood. Having our faith strengthened as we are nourished by this meal that he has given to us. But it's only good for us. It only strengthens us in our faith if we have faith, if we trust in him, if he is indeed our Lord, if he is indeed our Savior, our King, and our God. If you believe that to be true, if you know that to be true, then he invites you to this table today. But first, we want to proclaim that that is true to us. So you'll find in your bullets in the words of the Apostles' Creed, this ancient statement of faith that has been for centuries and centuries proclaimed by those who trust in Jesus. Let us now add our voices and our hearts to theirs. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, 
suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for this heavenly meal. We pray that you indeed would nourish us through it, strengthen our faith, help us to see that we need not have a perfect faith, but merely a mustard seed's worth that trusts in you. You will bless it, you will sanctify it, you will nourish it, you will grow it. Help us to know this truth and help us to trust you all the more as we partake of your body and your blood. Amen. Would the elders come forward now, please?
Jesus Christ is with us always, and yet he promises in a special and mysterious way to be with us as we partake of his body. And so now he says to all who trust in him, take, eat, this is my body.
It is a sobering thing to consider the death of Christ, the fact that it was our sins that placed him on that tree, the fact that it is our sin which caused him to die. And so it is a somber thing to partake of the Lord's Supper, to proclaim the Lord's death once more. And yet, at the same time, it is a joyful thing. It is a joyful thing because our sins are forgiven. It is a joyful thing because Christ Jesus has demonstrated his love for us in this. So while we were still sinners, he has died for us. He has made us his own. And we are his beloved. Cleansed of our sin. So rejoicing, would you rise with me and sing hymn 340. There is a fountain filled with blood.
we look forward to that day when the Lord Jesus returns, when he sets all things to rights, when we shall truly be saved to sin no more. What a glorious day that will be. As we wait for that day, receive now the benediction. May the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever and ever. Amen. Amen.